with a sandboy chip. Hit me slowly, hit me quick. Welcome back to another episode of Punching Sideways. This one, well, I wasn't excited about it for a while. You never but Josh, are. Josh, you've been so excited that I just can't help but sort of get on board because you've been talking about this person. That's not right. The more excited other people get about things, normally the less excited you are. This is true because if it's not my idea, I don't necessarily get around it. Wow, until. the truth has finally come out. <laughs> You've just heard truth, people. Truth bombs here. Corinne Grant. Yes. Why? Corinne was the first funny person that I'd ever seen live. Mm-hmm. She gave my end of year speech in year 12, and she was very funny, even though in a very you know, sterile environment, I guess, being a school hall. And she's also from my hometown, Corriong, not exactly the home of comedy in Australia. And she had a really big comedy career in the 90s and mid-2000s and went into TV and stuff like Rove and she did the Edinburgh Festival in the UK. She's done a lot of great things in comedy and now she has this awesome career beyond comedy, which I think is what kind of made her jump out to me as someone from Koryong. Yeah. Because we all, everyone from around there kind of knows she had one life, mm-hmm. but not a lot of people probably know about her life beyond that. It's the second life that I'm interested in. Yeah. Gives me a bit of inspiration. It so does. should we find out a little bit about it? Let's do it. Corinne Grant, comedian entertainer and now lawyer from Corriong. Let's do it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Punching Sideways. Super excited today. Got someone from Corriong. People probably do know you, particularly if they're from Corriong. You're one of our one of our celebrities, I guess, one of the people that made it out of there and did well. So Corinne Grant. Comedian, author, TV host, and now lawyer, which I know that we're pretty fascinated by that last part. So welcome, Corinne. Welcome to Punching Sideways. Thanks for having me, Joshua and Mel. It's very good to be here. Now, Joshua or Josh? Well, I never used to be okay with Joshua, which I think holds constant with all Joshuas, but now I don't care. Now I'm in my (laughs) 30s. My grandmother called me that as a kid when I was in trouble. Now I just feel like I'm always in trouble, so... I'll go with Josh and, and, and unless you say something that I don't like and then I'll Joshua you. <laughs> I'm just usually like, or you. Yeah. Or, something or like you. That. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. I think there's actually a, a statue of you in Koryong, isn't there, Corinne? That's the man from Snowy River. We look nothing alike. <laughs> <laughs> it's either that or that, that small dog, which is not particularly flattering. <laughs> Small dog there. You call it Corinna Small Dog. No, I thought you were. I thought that's the only- <laughs> so, Corinne, we're obviously already on the Koryong tangent. So, I mean, you've had this great career and we'll probably get on to that. But just with Koryong, I've heard you talk about it a little bit. For people that don't know, what's your memory of the town growing up? Because you were kind of in that generation, I guess, just before me. And I think you actually did my year 12 end of year speech. In 2000, oh. which I'm not sure you've done any other speeches up there, but you were that person. What are your memories of Koryong? And I guess when you think about it now, has your thoughts about the place changed? I think Koryong's a different town now to what it was when I grew up there. So I left in, when did I finish school, high school, either 90 or 91, I can never remember which. And I mean, that's 30 years ago. So the town has changed a lot since then. I mean, there's the internet now. (laughs) There wasn't when I was growing up. We had 2AY and that was it, radio station, if you remember that. That was the extent of our connection with the outside world. We didn't even have Channel 10. But my childhood was when I look back on it, it was really quite idyllic. You know, you could get on your bike and ride down to the creek. You'd have to carry a stick with you to scare off the snakes. But you could kind of tell kids that nowadays. They go, didn't the police arrest your parents? Go, no, no. No, you could get on a bike and just go for the whole day when we were kids. Yeah. There was a pine forest that we used to go um, playing around in. Do you remember the pine forest, Josh, or were you a bit too young for that? So I guess this is probably a good chance just you didn't live obviously in the township itself, I'm assuming, if you were going to creeks and pine forests. Yeah, yeah, we were in town. Okay. Yeah, we were in town. We'd just get on our bikes and ride for 10 kilometres and go to the creek. <laughs> I don't, but there's a couple of pine forests around there. Flails Hill oh, used yes, to be yes. a pine forest. <laughs> so we would go up 
there, my best friends Lara and Virginia and I, and we'd play in the pine forest and pretend we were in an Eden Blyton novel and, you know, talking to fairies and so forth. It was really quite idyllic. It was It was great. It wasn't until we got older that, you know, there wasn't much to do. But you made your own fun. There was a pizza shop. There was the man from Snow River's grave. I mean, <laughs> okay, that was it. But, you know. It was you've you've listed off the big two there, so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went up there, oh, was it a couple months ago we went up there for a different thing, Josh? And I still think it's like stepping back into the 1980s when you go up that main street. Well, that's better than what it was when I grew up, which was like moving back into the 1950s. So it's it's come forward. <laughs> yes, it always stays exactly 30 years behind. So <laughs> yeah, it's a very right. idyllic place. It's yeah. probably the, the the pace of Koryong is something that when you come back from a faster-paced, I'm sorry, faster-paced location, like Albury's pretty slow-paced, but if it's a Melbourne or somewhere, it can feel like it's just gone into slow motion. But the older yes. I get, I think the more I appreciate that about the Absolutely. place. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And there is a, a generation of um, a, a younger generation up there who's trying to reinvigorate the town as well, which I don't think was around when I was a kid, or maybe it was. And what I call a younger generation now is what I consider to be elderly people when I was <laughs> a kid. But there are, you know, there's a really enthusiastic community out there who, you know, helps out with the Man from Snow River Festival and all of those, I think there was a Ute festival up there for a while, beautifying the town and so forth. It's a really great community. So talking about excitement, you're one of the few people I've ever heard in the media at any point in the past mention the Narial Creek Folk Festival. Narial Creek Folk <laughs> Festival was a, a big part of my growing up. My dad was in Rotary, he still is in Rotary, and Rotary would take a van out to the Narial Folk Festival and sell sausages and hamburgers and so forth on New Year's Eve. So that was our New Year's Eve every year when I was growing up as a kid was at the Narial Folk Festival. So did you get to do the little short shift and then go and party or were you on? I was too young. I, yeah. I just got to party all night like a wild eight-year-old. I can remember that I had short hair I had a spike and a rat's tail. I think the only reason my mother let me get both a spike and a rat's tail is because she didn't know what either was until they'd been cut into my head and it was too late. <laughs> I can remember running around hand in hand with my best friend Lara at the Narial Folk Festival and going past a couple. I had my short hair and Lara had long hair and a couple say, oh, isn't that sweet? They're boyfriend and girlfriend. <laughs> I started growing my hair again the next day. When you're eight... Oh, the worst insult in the world. (laughs) I think I only did one really big night that stands out at the Narial Creek Folk Festival, and I don't know whether you you saw it, Corinne, but right near where the main area is where people dance and the little stage, there's like this little slip into the creek where people must run and jump. The number of people that danced themselves off that small ledge and into the creek was just astounding. <laughs> so when you look back on it now, you think, gosh, it was so dangerous. But we, it was just so much fun we were doing the heel and toe and what other dances were there. I don't know. I remember the heel and toe. I think that was my favourite because all you had to do was remember to heel and toe. The Pride of Erin, that was the other one. All those progressive dances and so forth. I wonder if they still do that at the Narial Folk Festival. That's like progressing you ready to do your dead ball. You just go to the... <laughs> oh, yeah. I was I was well-trained by the time it came to the dead ball. <laughs> and your hair had grown back, luckily. So. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the thing. People from the city probably don't understand that debutante balls in small country towns are not fancy, elaborate, middle-class, upper-class affairs. Everyone gets involved. It's just it's what you do. It's part of growing up in a small country town is doing your deb. <laughs> And yeah. you're hiring the same suit that's got a cigarette burn on it from two years earlier. <laughs> exactly, that's right. <laughs> so oh, we won't go too hardcore into Nariel, for example, or Corian Corinne, because this show is mostly for Al- Albury and Wagga and the surrounding areas. But right. there was one story that you had in your book that I thought was amazing from Nariel, and that was a story about the trout farm and the, oh, and the yes. accidental death of a fish. Can you just tell us that story? Because I'd, I'd love to hear it in your own words. Because when I read that in the book, I laughed really loud. 
I've got to remember it now because I wrote that book ages ago <laughs> and all of that happened 20 odd years ago. Is this when I went there with Will and, and Adam? Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. So Will Anderson and I were doing this is before either of us had done any television or anything like that. We were doing a show together in the city called Show Pony and we had to come up with new material every week. So I decided to take everyone up to Coryong to, to hang out for a few days and we took Will and my friends Adam and Kevin along to the fish farm and there used to be, Nariel Fish Farm had a little viewing window and so you'd go down some steps so you were sort of underwater level and you'd look through this viewing window at fish and Will has quite a loud voice when he's startled or when he laughs and this fish shot into view and he screamed so loudly that the fish floated up to the surface. It went belly up and it floated up to the surface. And we all thought that Will had killed a fish. I mean, this is <laughs> this is Mariah Carey level screaming that he did. <laughs> By the time we got up to the top, though, it, it sort of it righted itself and, and went away. So he didn't kill it so much as just stun it. But it was a trip of carnage. I ended up accidentally... I did accidentally lead to the death of a, a turtle on the road as well, or a tortoise, whichever one it is, by trying to help it off the road. This is the story of my life, trying to help things and ending up making things worse. So I pulled over because this tortoise was crawling across the road and I thought, I'll get it off. And I just startled it onto the other side of the road and a car just ran straight over it. So the That's lesson from that is, if you're in trouble, please don't ask me for help. <laughs> If you like us, like I like us, get onto punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee. We won't go too much into the book because, as you mentioned, it's nearly a decade old at this point. But one thing that came out of the first half of the book was that you've lived a life where you've been dealing with trying to move forward, having these detours, but also a sentimentality about parts of your life that just seems to carry forward. Yes, and yeah. Looking back now as someone that's maybe moved a little bit out of media and is in law and you're a more mature yeah. person, how do you find that sentimental ch kid or teenager or 20-year-old now looking back? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think one of my eternal regrets is calling the book Confessions of a Hoarder because at around that time that hoarding show came out. <laughs> so we grew up with the word hoarder just meaning, you know, a bower bird, people who just keep a lot of stuff. But all of a sudden the term became pathologised and medicalised and everyone was deeply concerned that I had, you know, a proper <laughs> psychological disorder and I lived in a house where you had to bury through a tunnel of newspapers to get to the kitchen. But when I talk about hoarding, I talk about the low-level stuff that most of us do, especially in the country because we've got the room to do it. And I, I, I think the only reason that I, I don't have that same attachment to things now is because I did that deep process of getting rid of things and really examining why I was keeping hold of them. So I don't know whether it's an age thing so much as it becomes, it's a habit that becomes a part of your identity if you don't nip it in the bud. So, you know, I would hold on to, I think in the book I call them psychological booby traps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, half-finished projects that when you pull them out again, you're just left with a sense of shame that you spent that much money on, you know, $150 worth of wool because you were going to knit something and you knitted one square and gave up. Or, and that I did do, I'm sure I'm speaking to a lot of people who've done the same thing. Or old programs from funerals and so forth. You don't need to keep those things. And it was only going through that process really thoroughly of getting rid of them that I've learnt now to let go of stuff much more quickly. Stuff brings on a meaning that it should never have had if you let it sit in your house for too long. <laughs> so if you get rid of things quickly, you get rid of them. If you let them sit around, you go, oh, I remember that top. I wore it to Barry's 40th 20 years ago. Oh, gosh, wasn't that a wonderful night? Whereas if you got rid of the top, you know, within a year, you'd still remember Barry's 40th. You just wouldn't have this attachment to the top. Or maybe, depending on how much you drank, maybe you would never remember Barry's 40th in the first place. 
but yeah, so a long-winded way of saying that I, I think I'm exactly the same person that I was back then, as much as anybody is, as time moves forward. But I've learnt to, to nip a sentimentality in the bud earlier rather than later. But it's not too late to do it at any point in your life. Well, that's good. So, just one last thing on that. I know when I go home to Koryong, that I think it was that when I was an early creative person back then trying to play music. In the country, there's not a lot of distraction, so you imbue things with so much more meaning because it might be the only thing you had to do for a whole summer. I had, yes. I had this old guitar amp and this old guitar that lived in a cupboard that I'm never going to touch again, and no one can play it because it's that old and it's broken. Yeah. But I thought, oh, that was when I broke up with that girl coming home from second year of uni, and I wrote probably the most songs I've ever written in a three-month period just fueled by yep. grief or anger or whatever it is in retrospect. And I'm just wondering, as a creative person that grew up in that small town, do you think that that's something that we maybe do as people that grew up in little towns, that we put so much meaning into things that people with more options might not have? I think it's also just about having the space. So you've got the space <laughs> to keep that guitar and that amp. Yeah. Like, there are sheds full of crap in, in the country because you don't have to get rid of it, right? You don't actually have to face getting rid of something because there's always space to keep it. Yeah. And, again, you kept it for so long, you don't have to get rid of everything as well. Like you could keep that guitar and the amp if you got rid of, you know, a whole lot of other stuff. But then, again, you may not want to keep the guitar and the amp because you've got the songs. <laughs> there's a this is just the farmer mentality, isn't it? It's like, oh, I might oh, need yeah. that one day. Yeah. That's exactly I, when what I'll it build is. that shed, that bit of steel will be useful and I won't have to buy it. I've well, that's my... right. I mean, hoarding is not just about teddy bears and old guitars and photographs and stuff. It can be a whole massive Ferguson combination harvester. Yeah. It, the spare part that you might need. Yeah, that's ten right. Part, ten years down, that's the, right. down the track. The five motorbikes yeah. with a wasp nest in the exhaust pipes. Yes. <laughs> oh, man, there is not a shed in Koryong that doesn't have an old motorbike with a wasp's nest in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go on a, a little video tour and see how yeah, many we, we can find. Yeah. <laughs> see, I read Confessions of a Hoarder with you and think that you're hoarding careers. Hoarding careers, yeah, that's right. Although I let go of them as I move on as well. <laughs> I started off doing nursing. I lasted one year at that. Then I did drama. Then I was, well, I did comedy for 20-odd years. Um, and I still do a bit of corporate MC work as well, which is, you know, awards nights and so forth for banks and telcos and, you know, organisations like that. So I do a little bit of that still on the side and a bit of, charity MC work as well, but no more stand-up. And, yes, now I'm a lawyer, so uh, I changed careers when I was 39, which is a, a great time to do things. It's a really great time to, when you've got a mortgage, to go back to university and start again and get a hex debt in your 40s. It's I highly <laughs> recommend that. I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I don't, like I said to Josh this morning, I said it, it makes me so impressed that you did that then and it sort of gives you a bit of hope that it's never too late without sort of <laughs> making drawing point on your age or anything like that. Had you always wanted to do law and just thought it was either unattainable or you got to this path through experiencing other things through comedy and the other options that you had put in front of you? Yeah, so um, when I was at school... I had the marks to get into law and I'm pretty sure it was Richard Hubbard, the school teacher Richard Hubbard, who was <laughs> horrified that I did not put down law as an option and he was saying he was adamant that I should have and I was wasting my time by by not doing that. But at that stage when I was, you know, 18 years old, I thought law sounded really dry and dusty. It was wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase and it just wasn't for me at all. And then fast forward 20 years where I'd pretty much done everything in comedy that I wanted to do. You know, I'd, I'd been in a movie, I'd been in television shows, I'd toured around the country, I'd performed in China and the UK and Edinburgh and Ireland and I'd done everything that I could think of and everything was starting to feel a bit like Groundhog Day. I was just doing the same things over and over again. I wasn't really feeling 
like I was extending myself any further. And I'd got myself really involved in um, human rights advocacy, especially for refugee families and, and people who'd come to Australia seeking protection. And I wanted to do more in that space. And a, a very dear friend of mine who is a lawyer and works in that space said, why don't you do a law degree? And I said, um, well, that sounds hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very hard and time-consuming and expensive and how could I possibly do a six-year degree at my age? And he said, no, 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 it's postgraduate. You can do it in three years. And I said, oh, well, three years is doable. That's not the end of the world. And then I said, can you work while you're doing the law degree? And he said, yes, of course you can. There's time to do both. Well, that was a lie. It was the most intense three years of my life. I've never had so many sleepless nights. Like I don't think I pulled that many all-nighters even when I was in my 20s, <laughs> when I was going out and having fun. It was It was the most intense three years of my life doing that law degree. But I did it and I really enjoy working as a lawyer now. I find the intellectual challenge of it really stimulating and I, I get to help people and I really enjoy helping people. I've worked in personal injury law, so uh, helping people who have been injured at work and I love doing that because I grew up working class in a, you know, in a pretty working class town and I, I love talking to people who have the same sort of cultural background that I do, it was it was really, really rewarding to be able to assist people who reminded me of my friends and my family. And with the refugee work, it's really rewarding to, I mean, and that's a pretty hard area of law because you get more losses than you do wins in that area. But just there is something to be said for sitting down and listening to someone and empathising with them and doing everything you can to help, even if ultimately you don't succeed and they, they are forced back to wherever they've come from, at least you did everything you could and at least they know that someone was in their corner and did everything for them. And that's a reward in itself. So I really enjoy the work. It's hard and it's challenging, but it's really rewarding. And my hex debt will die with me, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've all been dealing with those for a long time. So. Yes. <laughs> this episode was edited by Deadset Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing. And my hex debt will die with me, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, well, we've all been dealing with those for a long time. So. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't. Because I don't like commitment. and But you are talking, Mel and I literally, Corinne <laughs> yeah. just had a conversation about, I've been umming and ahhing about a teaching degree probably since I finished my finance degree. Oh, you should do it. A friend of mine did his teaching degree in his late 30s and he's a teacher now. I'm happy you think I'm in my late 30s, which I am, not <laughs> mid-40s, which I probably look like I am. Mel was also talking about, we were just talking about literally five minutes before we spoke, about uh, what would uni be like commitment-wise and... I was saying it's a much bigger commitment than maybe people think that haven't done it. It's yeah, a, I mean, it, what you've it, done, law is about, I think, time-wise, the most commitment. Well, apart from medicine, yeah. and seriously, no one wants me to be a doctor. No one. <laughs> yeah, we've heard the story of you saving a turtle. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And and poor Paul Whitsard, shout out to Paul Whitsard from Coriong, who I tried to help at a roller disco and he ended up breaking his arm due to my assistance. So <laughs> you really don't ask me for help, unless it's legal help. Legal yeah. help. <laughs> Nothing that involves the potential for physical harm. Yeah. So uh, we'll get. We'll probably come back to the law thing because I think that's it's fascinating. Yeah, it is really fascinating. But just to go back, you mentioned Will Anderson, for example, earlier. Yes. And I don't think in the book that you mentioned that the Will you were talking about was Will Anderson, which I think was Oh, good. yeah, I don't think I do. No, yeah, so, no, that's right. In, in, that my, was... in my head, I just assumed that that's may, potentially who it was when you described the personality. Yes. But you started off doing comedy, and I think you mentioned somewhere in the book that there was yourself and Will, who was also from a small town, and maybe Dave Hughes is from a small town. Why, why were you guys attracted to comedy 
And was it something that you think you were getting out of it being from a small town that maybe someone from the city wasn't getting out of it? I don't know. I think I think the reason that the three of us worked so well together and the reason that we were good mates is because we had similar values and similar upbringings. And there is something to be said for growing up in the country where if you've got any airs or great and graces about you, they're knocked out of you pretty quick. Like I can remember going up home back to Corion, probably, you know, when I was at the height of doing Rove and the Glass House and all of that stuff. And I, I bumped into someone up the street and uh, I said, oh, my God, you know, blah, blah, how are you? I haven't seen you in forever. And they said, yeah, I'm good. How did dickhead like you get on the television? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only answer to that is by being a dickhead. What did you think? <laughs> I was just like no one is going to let you be up yourself in a country town and you've got to be able to laugh at yourself to be a comedian and maybe that's why people from the country are good at it. Like Tom Gleason's from the country as well and Tom is a, you know, has been a very dear friend over the years. We've done a lot of work together. I think, um, uh, yeah, coming from, and not everybody is like that though. I know a lot of, uh, probably more comedians from the city than from the country, but there is something about coming from the country that gives you a, a wry sense of humour, I think, because, yeah, you, you can't be a wanker if you grow up in a small country town. Well, have you had supportive parents or are they like mine and just the first ones to doubt when you're put in a p- position that people might look fondly upon you? Uh, <laughs> What, you? uh, Yeah, I think they were surprised and I think they understand law much better than they understand comedy. They understand how you make a career out of law much better than comedy. Um, Because, you know, you think about our parents' generation, it wasn't a thing that you did and made a living out of. I mean, it's, 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 it's a completely foreign exercise for them. So, I mean, they were as supportive as you can be when you don't really understand what it is that you're doing. So, yeah, I was. they didn't tell me not to do it. That is supportive. Yeah. And Maybe. they were proud of me. Well, that's a nice thing. That's a They nice. probably were disappointed by how much I swore, but <laughs> they, they were proud of me. Did your dad, do you think, use you as a bit of a name drop to get more people to buy rotary sausages or...? <laughs> I don't Same. know. Like, did he? I, mean, I hope he did because it's for charity, but I can't imagine that anyone would have given a crap. I'm, I'm Corinne Grant's father. Will you buy a sausage? What? <laughs> Mate, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I have this nostalgic thought process around Rotary barbecues. Like, I love them so much. The smell yes. of a Rotary bar, the people that are behind the bar are all characters that I yeah. always said that if anyone is stupid enough to marry me, I'd love just a Rotary barbecue there just to, just to do just, the yeah. catering. <laughs> yeah, the oh catering for a Rotary barbecue would be <laughs> the best. That is genius. Yeah, you don't want to all tizzy and fun. Like, just if people are there at your wedding, they're there because they want to be there for you. You don't need to put on a big thing, but Rotary Barbecue. And I really want to see the Rotary vegan option. Uh, (laughs) Is it onion? I'm not sure. (laughs) Just onion. I don't think the Corian Rotary would have one. (laughs) To be honest, oh, I know when the the old uh, the gluten free bread situation comes about, disgust. Of yeah. the older yeah. men behind the rotary, when when someone comes up and goes, "Oh, do you have gluten free?" Nah, I just white <laughs> white bread. You know, if for for anyone out there who's celiac or gluten intolerant, we all know that gluten free bread is a misnomer. Like it is just crap. They just have not invented a gluten free bread that is edible yet. No. The worst thing. You've just got to have the sausage on its own. you just got to throw up the white flag. Mind you, there's gluten in sausages. There's no celiacs going to a rotary barbecue. I wouldn't invite them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Too much trouble. Too much trouble. So one thing I I did notice with yourself and Will particularly, because I've followed his career and listened to his podcast pretty regularly, is that... You guys seem to have an understanding through your comedy career and through what you talk about that you're aware that not everyone within you know within Australia believes exactly what the Melbourne or Sydney comedy community believe about the world. Yes. Even if you happen to align with those people, 
in most things, you actually have a slightly broader understanding of, well, not everyone feels that that's the truth about that thing. Do you yeah, think that's that, right. Do you think that's helped you through your career in the media? Through the media and in law as well, that, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a cloistered middle class. It's very easy in the city to only mix with your own class and with your own ethnic and cultural backgrounds. You could be a whitey McWhite white that goes to a private school and really think that you have a great experience of the world, but it, it really is a very narrow view of everything. So I think coming from a country town where everybody rushes up against everybody else can make you more open to the idea of people having a different viewpoint. Like the idea that people from the country are narrow-minded is completely wrong. People from the country just might not have met a someone like you before, but if you sit down and talk to them and they decide you're a good bloke, then it, you're, you're apples, you know. Country people just, they're open to finding out that you're a good bloke or, or a good or a good broad. What do you call What do you call a woman from the country? Sheila. Sheila, <laughs> thank you. I don't think I've ever said that word. but <laughs> Sheila, yeah. But, you know, that I think country people are far more open-minded than what city people give them credit for just because uh, they may not have the same uh, level of diversity in the country doesn't mean that they're not capable of understanding it. And you know what? There's the internet now. I, I challenge you to find a kid growing up in a country town who isn't as knowledgeable about pop culture and what's, you know, the zeitgeist now, Black Lives Matter, all of that kind of stuff as any kid in the city. Yeah, I actually work in selling electrical stuff and I used to work in an IT job and I had a young person off a farm, I think they were five hours into central New South Wales from Albury-Wodonga and part of what he does to help out the farm each week is that he goes through and checks all the programming on their automated watering irrigation system. He's, it was about 15. Yeah. And to check that their wireless satellite internet was all working correctly. And that yeah. all the wireless links between their hay solo, oh, sorry, their grain solos were all working correctly. So this kid, you would think that he's grown up in the country, he would be almost technophobic, but he was one of the most tech-aware people I'd ever probably met under the age of eighteen. It was extraordinary. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's no reason why they wouldn't be. And there's also this. I think I I hope that the belief is disappearing now that people from their country are automatically climate change denialists, where it's the polar opposite. I mean, if you live on a farm, you've got an almanac that probably goes back two or three generations. You have seen the weather change. You know more about climate change than, than any politician in the city. You certainly know more about climate change than Barnaby Joyce. You know, people from the country are willing to embrace whatever technology uh, will offer to help them co combat climate change, to help them grow more productive crops, to grow more nutritious beef or, or lamb or whatever it is. People from the country are not afraid of, of change if it is going to assist them and make their futures better for themselves and their kids. It's completely a, a complete misapprehension to think that people from the country are stupid or backwards. I think the difference is that don't just tell them what to do. Tell them why they're doing it and how to do it. Yeah, that's right. And and that's a sign of intelligence. Don't tell someone what to do. You've got to give me a reason. If yeah. you don't give me a reason. So I, I couldn't drive a manual car until someone lifted the bonnet and showed me how it operated. And then I went, well, now I understand. It's not just a stick moving things around. Now I understand how it's operating. Country people are the same. You, you've got to You've got to invest in the logic of something. You can't just come down from on high and say, and thou shalt now laser level all of your fields. You've got to yeah. tell them why. Yeah. Yeah. Don't like being dictated no, to. Just as a no. complete, complete tangent, you mentioned driving a manual car. Was your experience learning to drive a manual like mine in the country that my dad was confused that I didn't come out of the womb already knowing how to drive a manual? But the yes. first time he got on the road, he's like, what do you mean you don't know how to use the clutch and the accelerator and stop on a hill? <laughs> he's like, You've all, you almost killed us going up the road. And I'm like, Dad, I've never driven a manual. He's like, but what about the motorbikes? I'm like, they're posties. They've got automatic gearboxes. 
Yes. He's like, oh, I just assumed you'd know how to do this from watching me do it. <laughs> oh, bless. <laughs> I still do harbour a prejudice against people who don't know how to drive manual. Like if you just got an, an automatic licence, you've cheated, Same. which is terrible. I recognise my prejudice and yet... I could probably comfortably drive a manual from here to the hospital if I had to. But if I had to do a long trip that involved lots of stopping on hills, I haven't driven a manual for 15 years, I don't think. Oh, I oh, know. It's like riding a bike. I it feel like I'm back. being judged at the uh, moment. No, I, no the, it's, I think what Corinne's saying is if you haven't learnt to drive a manual and you just opt for the automatic car licence because then eventually you'll be able to drive a manual theoretically. Yeah, that's a when bad choice. Li- like I'm, <laughs> I am a big hater of that as well. If you go yeah, auto, you, you should. You stick may as well have just got your bumper car license. Yeah, you know, it's, oh, <laughs> it's just the lazy option. You're steering uh, a machine. You don't really understand. I don't think you understand torque and physics and how a car actually moves on the road until you've physically moved it through the gears yourself, and you get an understanding of momentum that way. So, how do you feel about now all the new technology? with cars where they're starting to do their own things and park themselves because I hate it. I don't like No, them. no, I just can't. I'm still not I'm still not coping with the fact that I can't open the bonnet of the car and get out a crowbar and knock the brushes around so that it starts properly. You, know, <laughs> you open up the bonnet now and there's just the plastic cover covering evil. I don't know what's in there. <laughs> it's just wires and computers and, yes, the idea of the car doing the thinking for me. I mean, I'm a control freak. I'm a, like I'm a type A personality control freak. I'm not going to let the car do the driving for me, even if it's proven to be 100% safe. I'll still decide I can do a better job. That's me too. <laughs> I feel like validation when I do something good in a car. Like I, yeah. can, I can reverse parallel park like a gun. She is actually very good and, at that. I'll give her that. And it's like my boss move, but I've realised now, like, you know, I'll nail this reverse parallel park and get out and be like, oh, yeah, killed that, like there's guys around. Yeah. And now I've realised that people just press a button now and it's removing my satisfaction because I think to myself, they probably just think I automatically did that and it wasn't me that executed that gun park. Ugh. It's taking away my glory. You know what? It's the it's the car version of somebody owning an actual Gucci bag and everyone assuming you picked it up on a trip to Bali. Yes. <laughs> well, there's no point in having a real one because everyone assumes it's a knockoff exactly. anyway. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get you a sticker. You know how people have those babies on board stickers? I'm getting an I parked myself sticker. Yeah. Oh. You can just point to it. That would sell like hotcakes. You should do that. Yeah, I think the fact that your car's probably of the older generation, Mel, yeah. might give away the fact you parked it yourself. Still. Right. So are you are you living in a world of denial that people would think you've got a fancy car Maybe. when you're actually driving <laughs> but I know like a 2002 <laughs> Toyota Corolla or it's, something? It's an 06 Honda Civic, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit. But, but I, I have got in newer cars and driven other people. And the fact that they're changing when they want the beams on the car, high beam or low beam, I'm like, no, I, I can make a decision whether I need to see more or see less. Like, yes. you don't yes. need to do this for me. And the, I don't the even like wipers. cruise control. I don't like cruise control. Yeah. Sorry, I went on a little bit of a rant. <laughs> no, that's then. all right. <laughs> so, I, felt, I felt a hard relate to Corinne right there. Yeah. yeah. I just had to. <laughs> so, just so we cover it off, Corinne. I've, you I've, can I've, drive a manual. Yes. You've got it. I mean, I've, enjoyed, I've really I've enjoyed the car chats, but just if you can give us just a quick understanding of maybe that progression through comedy to TV, but maybe more so. Can you tell us about when you started to consider law and how you worked yourself into doing that and how maybe how long that period was and some of the fears, thoughts, emotions or whether how excited you were at the time? Like how long was that period? I think there was a period before law where I was dissatisfied with comedy and I I I think I started to realise that I was dissatisfied with comedy when the, the world of comedy started changing. This is when we, we first start looking at things starting to move online. We first, a lot of YouTube stars were starting to exist and that kind of thing. And I thought I should get onto that. I should start doing some of that stuff. 
and I just couldn't be asked. And I thought, well, that's not a good sign. And then I ran away to France for a few months. I'd always wanted to spend some time in France. I'd always wanted to learn. Ever since I was a kid, I just thought it was the epitome of everything. Just, you know, I think coming from a small country town, the idea that overseas actually exists and you can go there was as exciting to me as people going to the moon. So the first time I flew into Paris and I saw the Eiffel Tower, I cried. It was just so exciting to think that this place actually existed. And so I went and lived in France for two months and learned French. And then I came back for about three months and I went, no, nah, I'm going over there again. And so I lived there. For, I lived in a town called Lyon in the south of France for another two months, so both times in Lyon. And I realised when I was there that I didn't miss comedy at all. I just, I really didn't miss it one little bit. I didn't look at what other people were doing and get jealous or think, gosh, I should be doing that or I, I miss being out there with them. I didn't miss them. I didn't miss it at all. So I came back and started thinking about what could I do that would be fulfilling? What new career could I pick that would be fulfilling? And I thought, okay, well, what do I, what do I like about comedy? And what I liked about comedy was having projects that had a start and a middle and an end, you know, doing a festival show or doing a television show or, or, or going on a tour. There's a, there's a, definite end to it and that project is done you can say look at what I've achieved look at what I've completed so I enjoyed that aspect of a working life I liked working with people I liked working with really passionate people and feeling like what I was doing mattered so it was trying to find a career that ticked all of those boxes and that's when I started thinking about how much I enjoyed the charity work or volunteer work, I should say, I was doing in the refugee advocacy space. So I was, for 20 years, had been an outspoken, long before it was cool to be a refugee advocate, back from like 1999 onwards, I'd been a refugee advocate doing shows that were designed to educate members of the public and school kids about what it was really like to be a refugee, what it was like to come from those countries, to travel by boat, to land in Australia, to be in detention, to emceeing charity nights and so forth. And the more of that I was doing, the more I was bringing people onto stage who were making a real difference in that space and, and really changing government policy, changing the law, were doing something really concrete. And I thought, I feel like I'm standing on the sidelines and I would like to really stick my fingers into this and, and make those changes myself. And that is when, as I was saying before, my friend said to me, well, why don't you do a law degree? And law does tick all of those boxes for me. I'm surrounded by people who are really passionate. You work on a project, you know, it, it's a case that you're working on that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Often the, the end can be years in the, the making. It can take a long time before you get there. But it, it has all of those aspects to it that I was looking for. And it's a real intellectual challenge as well so that's how I got into law so I would suggest to anyone who's looking for a career change don't look at jobs first look at what you enjoy and what gets you up in the morning and and what what kind of work environment you want and then find the career that ticks those boxes solid did you consider anything else was there anything else other than law that you thought at the time might like tick off those boxes? I did go through like entire university course <laughs> offerings to see if there were any other jobs. I did think about teaching and then I thought, no, I swear too much to be a teacher and I, I can't I can't do that. So you're saying that swearing is a you, – you can swear in law? Is that what – that's what I'm taking away from that? Depending on the type of law, yes, um, <laughs> you definitely can. Probably not in court. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the judge is probably not going to be okay with that. But I know with clients, depending on your client, like I've had clients ring me in tears and say, this insurance company's just cut off my payments and I don't know why. And I say to them, well, I can give you the long-winded answer, but the short answer is they cut off your payments because they're assholes. And that 
I mean, that just cuts through everything. Yeah. So next time I'm in a bad, I'm in a bad mood. I'm going to ring up your insurer, insurer, and rip them a new one. Yeah. And then you know, like it's just, it's just an easier way to have the conversation with someone to be able to. I mean, then you bring up. I don't think I've ever sworn at an insurance company. Not on the phone. I'm pretty sure I've hung up and then yelled "dickhead," but <laughs> I haven't. I haven't sworn on the phone at them. But yeah, I'm pretty sure you can't yell "dickhead" at a 15 year old if you're a teacher. Oh, I think some people have. <laughs> I'll, I'll double check with my older brother. He's a teacher. I'm sure he has. Double check. <laughs> Dick, yeah. Dickhead would be pretty gentle considering I the language he uses. There's an irony in the fact that you are throwing back to when you said. Growing up, you're like, this whole new world overseas, does it actually exist? And we're now in a situation where really there is that limitation on kids of thinking about going overseas or whether it will actually come to fruition. Look, I don't know. I, I would say to any, if there's anyone, you know, the age between 16 and 24 listening to this, you're going to be okay. Like, you are going to be okay. Don't listen to all of the psychologists who are on television saying, this is going to harm you permanently. It's not going to harm you permanently. You're going to be okay. It's a, a weird period of time, but you're going to come through it fine. Everybody goes through something odd in their life. Like people went through world wars and came out of it. You're going to be okay. You might Everything might be delayed a bit, but you're going to be okay. Yeah, there you go. Truth. Well, that might be a good place to really to maybe finish up on that. That's a pretty powerful message. Oh. <laughs> we don't always we don't always have those on patching sideways. Mostly it's just shit talk. But uh, <laughs> Corinne, thank you. I just wanted to just to cap off maybe just one thing quickly about Corrion. I want to yeah. know about Lara and Virginia. What are they up to now? <laughs> Virginia, I don't know. Lara is a school teacher in Melbourne. There you go. Okay, well, maybe you can find out how much they swear. So. The <laughs> Koryong has, and it's not, let's rank places that have been affected most by everything that's happening, but they had a run of the bad luck. Well, yeah, the bushfires, and then they went straight into COVID, and they rely yep. so much on the Manfred Snow River Festival for different reasons. Yes. And that had had a trouble, troubled past, and it had just come out of the darkness, and then this has affected it all. Is there oh, any, yeah. if people from Koryong are listening, because we have had some people on in the past where we do get more Koryong listeners, what would you say to those people as someone that, I think I, I can sense that you still think about the place. I'm going to cry. <laughs> oh, I feel so bad for people in Koryong. They've just gone through so much. But the one thing that I know about people from Koryong, and, you know, I'm involved in a few Facebook groups, is how resilient people up there are and how much they come together as a family. They've gone through such an awful time. The bushfires were crushing, drought. They so often get forgotten as well. People in Koryong get forgotten by the politicians. We don't forget you. There are many people in the city, former Koryong people and other people from the country who know what you're going through, who know the hardships, who know that there are people suffering really, really terrible mental health effects up home at the moment as well. And that has, there's been some losses up in that community that the whole place has felt. It's just gutting. And it's gutting that we can't get up there to be with you. But I know that that community is strong and resilient. And I know that they have each other's backs. And we think about you all the time and we send you lots of love. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Man. I'm sorry I upset you, but it, it really fits. No, me. no, tears are not a bad thing. Tears show you care. Yeah. Right. I will thank you, Corinne. That's amazing. Is there anything that you're doing publicly at the moment that people might want to keep an eye out for? Or are you. I do the drum every now and again on the ABC. I did the drum last night and I did manage to drop the word bullshit in at the end of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to watch somebody take down the tone of what's meant to be a very insightful political and uh, current affairs type show, watch out. I've also managed to turn modern monetary theory into a dick joke on the drum as well. <laughs> so, you know, tune in tune in for the lowbrow contributions on the drum. I'm on about every month or so. I, I think it. every good show needs a little bit of that. So. Oh, I reckon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. <laughs> Keeping it real. Yeah. It's awesome. Right, mate. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for Lots making, of love. making okay. the what time. What a pleasure. Appreciate okay. it. See you, mate. Bye.
So are you going to become a lawyer, Mel? Have you been inspired? I actually have been a little bit inspired. The way she talked about how she came to that point ticks a lot of boxes for me. I'm not saying that I could necessarily go and do it. And one thing that I did mention earlier was I've always thought about doing a lawyer type thing and you're like, oh, it's a lot of commitment. And I was like, yeah, that's why I haven't done it yet. <laughs> it's not yeah. It's not the filter of what you'd expect. Yeah. You, like, know what, I, you know what that is? <laughs> that's the university grad defensiveness for people that think that it's just a lark. Yeah. And okay. I'm sorry that I put that on you because <laughs> I, I think that even Corinne might have straightened me out a little bit in the audio that – it, you should do it if you're excited about it, but don't make any mistake that it's hard work. Whereas yeah. I just sounded like a dick when I said yeah. it to you. Sorry. <laughs> you you know me enough to know that I hate committing to things. So yeah, was, but when you said that, I've never thought about you as someone that doesn't commit to things. Yeah. Like that when you said that, it almost didn't ring true for me. The the fear of commitment is I know that when I commit to something, I'm all in. Like I'm all or nothing. So there's no in-between scenario. Because that's what I was thinking. That is all I know about you, yeah. is that if you actually are into something, then it is 100% and there's no other percent. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I get to do well at university. I mean, I, there's a lot of P equals degree thinking at uni yeah. that you just get through it. Mm. But I think if you want to excel at it, like to do something like law or medicine or veterinary stuff where yeah. it's really high expectation, I think that's 100 or zero. So I think you'd actually be good at it. It is made for someone like me. It's just oh, there's time involved, and there's just things that I'm gonna have to do. And I think if if someone actually, so I'm winking at you right now, Josh, in a very non-suggestive way in that area. We've talked about there's no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> but if someone actually helped me push me through the application process, once I was in, I'd be fine. It's that step that yep. always balks me. Because that's the commitment to me. That It's incredibly weird that you brought that up, but I had a pre, because in the interview we talked about how I was thinking about doing a teaching degree. Yeah. And I had an hour-long conversation with Charles Sturt University where yep. I did my first degree because I can hopefully get credits if yep. I was to go back there. And just the idea of having to go through and work out which subjects I had to get myself into like more the study path than the yeah. actual learning. I just thought, well, that sounds like a whole lot of work. Yeah. I can just go to work 40 hours a week instead, <laughs> then work out how to do an application and get my first semester sorted. That's the roadblock in my head. That's my roadblock for sure. <laughs> if, if, if I was accepted in, I'd just be like, oh, yeah, cool. Bring it. Yeah. I'm there with you. <laughs> So maybe we can nudge each other. I think we need to. And yeah, if anyone else is out there thinking about doing any kind of study, you don't have to be a lawyer like Karina. Well, I was going to say, but- if anyone's looking at any pictures and seeing me in a flanny and thinking, lawyer, actually throw me some shade because that might be enough to nudge me in a, you I've know, wor- how I need to prove a point scenario. I've worked out that motivating you is quite often about shade. <laughs> if I can't motivate Mel. Don't encourage me. Through encouragement, <laughs> it's through shading. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, sometimes it's sideways shading by putting a little bit of light on someone that maybe I know you don't like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I need to be better or prove that I can do something that someone else has doubted that I can do. That's yeah. my ultimate driving force. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty good to me. So talking about driving forces, we're powered by caffeine here. Yeah. I just had one. It was great. I don't know whether it actually made any of the audio, but you were sledging me about not having coffees ready for you <laughs> at some point recently. This when- is true, and you've lifted your game, to be honest. I walked in the door today. It's getting way too familiar coming into this space as well that I'm just – I'm not even knocking anymore. I'm just – Rolling in. I'm part of it. Da, 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 da. What do you mean? See, I've got to take my shoes off. see me rolling, <laughs> and I just, like, bounce in. And today you were – Boiling the kettle and stirring one cup, and I was sitting there thinking, hmm, what's he doing? And seeing that look on your face made me just go you, with it. You didn't mention anything, and I was thinking, I really want a coffee. I wonder whether he's thinking of maybe whether I could have one or not. 
And then it was for me. It was. It wasn't even for you. It was amazing. Best surprise ever. If you ever want to make me it feel... It was mostly because of my two o'clock rule, though, not because I'm a good person. Oh. You know about the two o'clock rule. Yeah, no caffeine after two. Yeah. Have you ever had no-dos? No, but I've heard... I know that the drummer in my first band used to smash a few in Wagga before he drove back sometimes. Have you ever had pre-workout? like, And did that give you a bit of a, like, a zzz? I used to have this stuff that I got off my niece. Yeah. And my sister, like, oh... This stuff's a little bit too intense for a teenager. Yeah. Do you want it? Okay, I'll give it a go. And I was you meant to use a quarter of a capful. And yeah. if I used any more than that and played a 9.30 game of basketball, I didn't sleep. Yeah, right. And yeah. I should have known at that point that I had a sensitivity to caffeine. But the next week I'd do exactly the same thing. Half a capful, play a half-decent game of basketball for an old person, and then not sleep. <laughs> so I, when I first started going back to the gym... I got like a few supplements and everything and got this pre-workout and just thought I'm so unfit. I'll just just G myself up pretty much. And I was just getting so frustrated because I just felt like I was just dying and not getting any fit. I was like, are you so puffed? Why are you so puffed? And then I lent it to someone that was going on a big trip that usually takes B or whatever. And I said, I'll try this pre-workout or whatever. And he rang me and he said, I feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. What's in this stuff? And then we had a look and it was like a massive amount of ca- like caffeine. And he's a big guy and he was taking the same dose that what I was taking. Right. And you are not a big guy. No, I'm not a big wondering. guy. I'm a little guy. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> Without the guy bits. But anyway, I then worked out. The reason I felt so unfit was that my heart was racing so much <laughs> because of this. <laughs> excessive caffeine. So you I, should have been in one heart rate, but it was pushing you into it. I just felt like I was just, I was, I was like doing cardio. I was like, far out, I should be getting fitter. Seriously, <laughs> this is, this shouldn't be happening to me. Yeah. And that, after that, I stopped taking it and I'm, I feel like I'm kicking goals now. Yeah, I've never, in retrospect, years ago when I first got fit, yeah. I was pounding it, Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And my metabolism went back to when I was like five, six years younger. Yeah. It just went off its head. So I could have been consuming anything at that point and my body was just chewing it. Yeah, right. And then when I had the same stuff a while later, but even stronger, this stuff that my sister gave me, I was that sensitive to it that if I had one tiny milligram too much, I would upset my sleep patterns for – because it's not just the the night you don't sleep. Yeah. It's like having a hangover with no party involved. (laughs) Well, this this guy um, has done some long-form trips and I've lent him stuff in the park, but he's too scared to take it now, like if he's had a V he or something. He doesn't know what you're dealing with. <laughs> he's just like, no. Nah. And it's a white powder as well, yeah, which so is So why great. does he take it just to make you feel better? Well, oh. like if he's going for a long trip, like usually he's one to have no-dos and stuff like that. So it's just like, oh, I've got this. You can just keep it in your buffer. And he goes like, oh, no, nah, go a bit scared. After last time, don't think I can do it big like you and just made his heart go, whatever that means, probably short circuit it. But caffeine for me, back to caffeine, I'd love a coffee because coffee does the opposite to me. I find it very relaxing. I was going to ask for someone that just was talking about it upsetting you. You do consume a few. It relaxes me. So if I had a coffee in the evening, it doesn't do what it would do to you. It it just is a warming yeah, like, like I don't know, Mel, whether a single coffee would keep me awake. Yeah, but I've got to the point where I'm so protective yeah. over that sleep quality. Yeah, because I've always been a shit. Anyone who knows me, particularly family, will know I've I've always been a crap sleeper. Same. It takes me ages to go to sleep. I can get woken up a lot, and sometimes I'll just wake up super early, and I can't just do what a lot of people do and just go straight back to sleep. I'm just awake, so I, I have to be super vigilant. Over any stimulants. Yeah. Because I know when I have a Coke sometimes, instead of having a beer when I go out for dinner or whatever, even that I can kind of feel pushes me half an hour, an hour later into yeah. my night. That's interesting. The vigilant word just brain tweaks me to my dad's references all the time when I'm working with him. <laughs> to be vigilant. <laughs> just, it's all about me. You turn up and your head's already shaking from yeah. too much pre-workout. He's just like, vigilant. Vigilant. 
<laughs> got to be vigilant. Get your hand out of there. Got to be vigilant. Like if there's any accident or anything, it's just me vigilant. I was vigilant in the dairy. Got to be vigilant to turn the cows' cups off when you're down there. Vigilant as always. When I think about your dad, I think vigilant, but you, I think vigilante. <laughs> I'm a bit of a vigilante. So coffees. Oh, yeah, coffees. We, people can buy us them, even though we're talking about them affecting us. These are digital coffees. So all they do is give us the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. Pretty much they just fund the electricity to pay for this so you guys get to listen to it. Pretty much. It's almost like it should be called buymeamilo.com. Yeah. It's more like the goodness of a Milo. Or just pay my bills, bitch. Yeah, or, or paymybillsbitch.com. <laughs> But you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Joshua C. Liston, which is our address. If you're seeing this on social media and you clicked on something, it's probably on there anyway. Mm-hmm. And you can also go to punchingsideways.com and there's a big buy me a coffee button. That's probably honestly the easiest way Yeah, because you know you're going to the right place. And on the website, you can share it and listen to it, but also find the button there. And yeah, I mean, even though we don't have the studio anymore, it still costs money to keep this thing running. So anything people can throw our way would be awesome. Yeah, and shout out to Corinne Grant for coming on today and just being all nostalgic and, and we, lovely. Lovely. In regards we to talked Corian. about the word lovely. I'm putting this out to the audience. That was the vibe I got off it. She was she was funny and a great storyteller, but I just walked away thinking, "Geez, that was a lovely person." Yeah. And I want to know from the audience: is that pejorative? Is that a, not a nice thing to say? Does it? I don't know. Deflate someone's character to call them lovely. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. think so. I think I'd rather so get you're called te- you're lovely, team lovely than babe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're team lovely? I'm team lovely. I'm team undecided. Okay. Righto, guys. Punchingsideways.com. Thanks, Mel. Laters.